Hello and welcome to another BGS English Revision podcast um, on a fellow. This is your CIE IGCSE uh, Paper 3 drama. Um, and today I am here with Mr Evans. Hello. Um, and we are going to look at Act 4, Scene 3, um, an extract from Act 4, Scene 3, um, which you will find in the little handout that comes with this, which we highly recommend you um, mm-hmm. uh, download and have a look at, which has the extract, the question, um, and then it has lots of bullet points um, with our thoughts and ideas that we're discussing now, although you might find that our discussion veers off um, slightly. So um, just a couple of little housekeeping type things just to remind you um, that obviously this is an extract-based question. So um, what you want to focus on is really detailed analysis of what is actually happening in the scene uh, in terms of dramatic impact and language. Um, and just another little thing, which is that um, CIE have this habit of putting the question um, at the bottom of the extract rather than at the top, which is very close to the whole text question. So just make sure that you are, in fact, looking at the question. Um, and the question for this extract is, how does Shakespeare make this such a moving moment in the play? Um, so maybe, Mr Evans, if you would like to read the thesis statement. Definitely. So the thesis begins, Act 4, Scene 3, often known as the Willow Scene, is arguably the most poignant and moving scene in the play, foreshadowing Desdemona's murder by Othello in Act 5, Scene 2. It is a rare moment of stillness and calm in the chaos caused by Iago's Machiavellian scheming, and is the only scene in which we see Amelia and Desdemona alone. The atmosphere is further heightened by Desdemona's singing of the Willow Song and the intimacy of her undressing and preparing for bed that is to be her deathbed. Amelia's experience in cynicism about men and marriage is juxtaposed with Desdemona's innocence and naivety. Just before the extract, we have seen Othello command Desdemona to get ready for bed, and the dramatic irony adds to the pathos. Thank you. So just before we start talking about um, our three key points, which is how we've organised this extract question, and in fact how um, we suggest you organise your answers, um, just to say really with the the thesis statement or the intro, it's with the extract-based question, it's just trying to juggle a few things. You don't want to explain to the examiner everything that's happened before. What you want to think about is why is this scene important? What's interesting about what's happening in the scene how is it interesting from a dramatic perspective in terms of what's happening and where it's placed um and maybe a little bit about the characters that are in there um if that's relevant um and i hope you can see how we've tried to do that there um but the first thing that we were going to talk about then um in this extract is uh the juxtaposition of amelia and desdemona and how those two characters Um, are playing off each other in this scene. And obviously they are the only two characters in the scene. And that's worth thinking about in your extracts, you know, who is actually in there. Is it a scene where people come in and out and therefore the dynamic changes? Or is it one like this where you have two characters for the entirety um, of the extract? Exactly. So I think one of the things that we see earlier on in the play by comparison is... um, Any other scene involving women often involves the men also being present and actually being able to comment on the women and being able to make them feel in some way negatively towards themselves. So, for example, earlier on we see Iago um, really be quite mean to Desdemona in order to, we assume, curry favour 
with some of the men around him, but it's not, again, completely clear. Um, so this is a rare moment where we actually see these two characters alone. Um, and on top of that, Amelia is set up to some degree as a foil for Desdemona, when you yeah, see. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to go back to what Mr. Evans said there, yeah, I mean, Act 4, Scene 3, there is a tiny bit at the beginning um, with Othello giving um, Desdemona directions mm -hmm. um, about going to bed, but the majority of the rest of the scene um, is just um, the women. So, yeah, thinking about what Mr. Evans just said there about kind of Amelia and Desdemona and Amelia as a foil to Desdemona, I think particularly in this extract, I think it's true throughout the play as a whole, but I think it's heightened in this extract is the fact that we have um, Desdemona at her most innocent, pure and naive um, Unable to believe that a woman could ever be unfaithful for anything in the whole wide world. Um, and obviously, Amelia um, uh, offers a, a counterpoint to that. She's much more pragmatic. Um, and if you look at the kind of language, there's a kind of echoing of language. We yeah. see that with the Argar and Othello at other points. So it's quite interesting it's happening here. Um, but the, um, the phrase, the whole world, um, is used quite a few times. Yeah. So we have that moment where Desdemona says, uh, sorry, where Amelia begins with, uh, there be some such no question, and Desdemona says, wouldst thou do such a deed for all the world? So they're discussing this idea of would you actually be willing to commit adultery? Um, and Amelia says, why would not you? And Desdemona has back, no, by this heavenly light. Now, we know throughout most of the play that Desdemona is represented through this imagery of light and, you know, innocence, um, the shape, the colour of white as well. Um, and then Amelia has that retort, nor I neither by this heavenly light, I might do it as well in the dark, which is uh, excellent to see. Well, in, in a sense, what would you say is the aim there? Well, I think I, I think a couple of things. Happening. I think you're quite right, that imagery, you know, if you're thinking about the kind of um, colour imagery in um, Othello, you know, right from the very beginning when Iago says there's a black ram topping your mm -hmm. white you, you've got that contrast of black and white, good and evil um, Othello as, as a black man, um, Desdemona as a white Venetian woman, yeah. all of those things. And I think here there is, even though the scene is, is a scene of great pathos and poignancy, I think there is a kind of slightly grim humour in Amelia's pragmatism mm -hmm. here as well. Yeah. She's Come on, Desdemona, you know, you don't have to do it in the light. You can do it yeah. in the dark and nobody can see. So... And I think that's one of the things that Shakespeare always enjoys with his characters is the verbal playfulness, which Amelia has in this yes. moment. Iago also has it throughout the play. And there are very few other characters that actually achieve that in conversation with others. Again, I would say Desdemona, maybe slightly earlier in the play. So when she has that line where she says, I might do it as well in the dark, you know, it's both vaguely kind of has this undertone of uh, sexuality that she would actually literally have sex with someone in the dark but then also there's the contrast between yeah the virginal idea of Desdemona yes and the much more which I think here is almost slightly moment. hyperbolic isn't it which it kind of needs to be at this moment in the play because there yes. is the whole question that you know yes Desdemona is a pampered only child and would have been quite protected but she is also you know a noble woman of Venice who we would mm. expect perhaps to be a little bit more worldly than she is portrayed in the scene and if you think back to um, Desdemona um, uh, in Act 1, Scene 3 or um, when she's talking in front of the council chamber and the Duke or um, in Act 2, Scene 1 when she's sparring with Iago yeah, exactly. actually the, the Desdemona who's sparring with Iago and making kind of sexual jokes there seems slightly odds with the Desdemona that we've got here I would say arguably, actually, as the play goes on, and particularly by the time we reach the end, Desdemona becomes more of an innocent, kind of slightly yes. simplified version of herself than compared to what we see earlier. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a really interesting point. I, mean, I think that's obviously a dramatic decision that mm. um, Shakespeare makes 
he needs her to be at this point in the play. She needs to be almost kind of one dimensionally yeah. perfect, which, um, you know, perhaps makes her naivety um, seem slightly unbelievable. But I think that's kind mm. of counteracted by where we are in the play um, and, and the kind of pathos that is created. Um, shall we move on to the second um, yeah. point, which is um, how pathos is created in the scene? And actually, looking at, look at my plan now, I, I wonder whether I might flip those two points and I might actually have started with how pathos is created yeah. in the scene and then gone on to talk about Amelia and Desdemona. Um, but I think, you know, you heard at the beginning of the podcast, we gave you a little snippet of somebody singing the Willow song. Um, and I think it's really important to note this, you know, the, the impact of music. Um, yes. It's the one scene in the play that actually has, it's not just Act 4, Scene 3, is known as the Willow scene. And so the significance of the Willow song, um, both in terms of um, what it connotes um, and its significance in Desdemona's life, actually just the impact mm. of having a song in the play. So I don't know if you've got some thoughts about that. Well, I was going to say about the Willow song. So one of the things that we know is that it is a folk song that was ex existed at the time, but actually would have come into a fairly strong popularity around about only 100 years or so before. Um, one easy mistake that I find people often make is thinking, oh, Willows, Willows are related to weeping, weeping Willows. But actually... Weeping Willows weren't in England at that time. They were introduced in China later. So what we have is that the willow tree has this association with sadness anyway, and that relates back to a line in the Bible, actually. Um, and in this moment, when we see Desdemona singing it, we then get this overwhelming feeling of sadness and this overwhelming feeling of dread, which is what she's trying to express to us. Um, Shakespeare really does play heavily on this foreshadowing. So um, Desdemona obviously highlights it herself in conversation. She says, doth that bode weeping? And just to be clear, that's not part of the song. That is actually her asking Amelia, do you not think the story of this song is quite poignant? And uh, funnily enough, what happens immediately after is their conversation kind of goes off topic rather than necessarily focusing on the foreshadowing. I, I think the fact that the song, I mean, um, the introduction to the song comes slightly before this extract, mm. doesn't it, where she says she's got this song in her mind. It's a song yeah. that her mother's maid, Barbara, used to sing and she used to, what happened to her, she was forsaken by her lover and went mad mm. and the song itself is about infidelity. So it has all of those kind of connotations but also the way in which the song itself is fragmented and subsumed into the extract so it kind mm. of comes in and out, um, I think... Uh, is very effective in kind of creating that sense of pathos as well. And I think the song itself, again, obviously it's not there in the text, but we know that it has this feeling of sadness and this feeling of the melody kind of constantly yeah. falling down. And actually just that thing which I said to my class, which is, you know, I think music is more direct than words, isn't mm. it? If you want to make, if you want to well, create an atmosphere very quickly, yeah. you do it by playing music, don't you? Well, it's you? the original so, meaning of melodrama, melody yeah. and drama. So. so I think definitely if you were, you know, if you were analysing this scene, there are quite a mm. few things you can say about the song itself and the way that it's actually used um, during the scene um, and I think also I mean if we're back to the pathos we've got the music but we've also got the fact that you know physically what's actually happening during the scene Desdemona is you know being helped by Amelia to get undressed and get ready for bed yes. um, so you know back to what you were saying about the foreshadowing yes and there's a mention uh, I think it might be just before this scene where she asks uh, where Desdemona asks Amelia to unpin her and then that is reflected later right in the moment of Desdemona's death, where she again uh, refers to being unbound um, with Othello. So what we see with this scene in general, I would say, is when we sort of think about the pathos of it, there's a mirroring between this moment 
and at the end of the play where she recalls the Willow song, she recalls those uh, Absolutely. words. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's echoed in that, isn't it? And, and, mm. and just the, the simple kind of vulnerability of somebody who is, um, you know, we know because of dramatic irony what's going to happen to her anyway. She knows mm. instinctively, it feels, even though she doesn't actually know. Um, and the fact that she's sitting here in her night clothes, mm. you know, with her hair down and all of those things really adds to that um, sense of um, pathos, I think. Um, and um, I think the other thing is, um, which is in the notes as well, is that a lot of the scenes in this play are street scenes, aren't they? And mm. they're ones with people in mid-conversation and active and things are happening. And this one, we've got stillness. And not only mm. are we in an interior, but it's not a public interior like that one scene three. It's actually a bedchamber yeah. that's meant to be a place of kind of safety and love and all of those things, but that's actually going to be the place where Desdemona is going to be murdered. So I think that really heightens the pathos as well. And on top of that, to some degree, the play slowly moves inward, act by act, until before you know it, most of the scenes are taking place in the bedchamber towards yeah. the end. Um, and we know that, obviously, at the end of the play, that's where the murder will happen. Absolutely, although we have got that, because this is at the end of Act 4, isn't it? And then, obviously, if you think about Act 5, Scene 1, we have a yeah, brief have interlude, that. don't we, with a kind of Energetic. chaotic um, um, murder of Rodrigo. Yeah. And, um, um, attempt to murder Cassio before we're then back inside yeah. the bedchamber. But even then, in Act Five, the bedchamber, um, there's an intimacy, a, a strange and frightening kind of intimacy between yeah. Bella and Desdemona before he murders her. But then it's like full of everybody. Yeah, every, well, it's, like, it's, it's as if the greater world of the play suddenly bursts in. Yes. And actually, that's represented through Amelia in that last scene. Yes. So, what we see in this scene by comparison is, you know, we have Amelia talking about the world. She represents the world and worldly wisdom as she comes in at the end of the play and actually identifies everything that's gone on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, I think structurally um, there are lots of things you can say if you've got an extract mm. from Act 4, Scene 3 because it is very different to a lot of the other scenes. So I think yeah. that kind of makes it easier um, to talk about. Um, shall we move on to the third yes. point then, which is... Um, women's, powerless yeah. in the women's powerlessness in the world of the play. Um, and I think that... It, this is very clear in this scene. This is, you know, explicitly what the scene is about, I would say, particularly towards the end when Amelia begins to talk about essentially what men's position are in that society, what women's mm. positions are in that society and what the expectations are there. So Amelia's argument is essentially that she would commit adultery because for her it would be a way to be able, if it provides a way to change the world, then why not do it? Why not work through dirty tactics? Um, and Desdemona, again, placed in this much more innocent role, is obviously against that. Um, but Amelia is the person who gets kind of the last large speech and therefore is able to make that argument. Yeah, and I think that, that you know, sometimes there's a danger, particularly when people are running out of time in the exams, and I think that's really important to think about when you're annotating, mm. that the end of an extract gets kind of left out. Yeah. Um, and there's usually a reason why they're giving you the extract that they have. And in this one, actually, in... In terms of what's been said in the play, this you know that's Amelia's biggest speech, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Amelia's em, Amelia's an interesting and important part in the play, but if you actually count up the number of lines, it's not that significant in that way. So actually, this is her one chance. This is this is um, Shakespeare's opportunity, really, to say something about the yeah. way that the world treats 
um, women. So that speech does need a little bit of unpicking. I mean, what do you think is particularly interesting about some of the things she says in that speech? Well, I think from the middle of the speech, we have, you know, let husbands know their wives have scents like them. They see and smell and have their palates both for sweet and sour as husbands have. And then she goes into the series of interrogative sentences or, you know, just questions with what is it that they do when they change us for others? Is it sport? I think it is. So she's almost having a dialogue um, that is presented as if it's going to be an open question with Desdemona, but Amelia knows all of the answers. She knows yeah. what arguments she and wants Desdemona to And Desdemona arguably isn't even really listening here, mm-hmm. so it's, it's more yeah. like a kind of soliloquy in a conversation with the audience. I mean, for those of you who may have studied uh, Merchant of Venice um, in Act yes. 9, that you, I think you can probably see there's some definite parallels here with Shylock's famous exactly, speech, Exactly, the half not a eyes, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, here we have people who are oppressed and then a minority for whatever reason mm. it is and who kind of lack agency and power. Um, and I mean, it's a similar thing, you know, Amelia saying, well, you know, women, women have the same needs, desires, yeah. passions as men. And I would say another thing that's interesting with the play of kind of the gender politics of the situation is that normally the argument women are like men is made when people say women can compete in sports, women can fight, things like that. But what she says here is have we not desires for sport? And let's note that is not to play rugby. Definitely not to play rugby. Desires for sport, in other words, to engage with other people in conversation, things like that, and frailty as men have. So what she's identifying is actually the qualities that are usually given to women in that era. She's arguing that men have those qualities, and that's one of the aspects. I think also, um, I don't know whether you agree, I think that sport thing is actually an acknowledgement that women have sexual desires too, as well as men, and that's not just a masculine thing. Um, uh, so I think that's kind of an important thing to think about um, mm. but it is it is like a little polemic that bit isn't it where it's kind of Amelia's manifesto mm. about you know why perhaps women should be treated um, I mean the, the whole question of really what Shakespeare felt about women is an interesting one because lots of critics have come up with lots of different things and the brilliant thing yeah. about Shakespeare is he he gives you the characters and he kind of leaves you the space to kind of you know, work yeah. out what you think might be happening there. Well, it's part of the reason that people continue to study him. Yeah, say. absolutely. Um, one last aspect that I think we'd want to get in there as well is the fact that actually within that speech, Desdemona's reaction is slightly not flippant, but as we mentioned, she's clearly necessarily isn't listening to every aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, she's distracted. Um, exactly, she's distracted by her impending death <laughs> to some degree. Um, And so then what we see is that actually, again, it does highlight the powerlessness of the women in the play because there's an element where if all the women in the play were just able to speak together and speak openly and be able to be honest about their emotions and then have the men listen to them, maybe they could prevent the events of the play from happening. Absolutely. And Amelia is the great truth teller later on. And I wonder whether there's a kind of irony here as well that, you know, Amelia is married to Iago, Mm. who it turns out, you know, has managed to dupe her as much as he does anyone else. But, you know, in a a misogynistic world, he is the most misogynistic character, arguably, in the play. And yet here is his wife... Um, you know, appealing um, against the misogyny that exists. I think another thing that's worth mentioning, and and this is, again, a really use... I think sometimes people forget this, and it's something that could come into a lot of extracts, is that um, the the move from Venice in Act 1 to Mm. Cyprus for the rest of the play 
is a really significant shift. It's more than just a kind of geographical location. So I think if we're thinking about women's powerlessness, mm. I think that is exacerbated by the fact that we find ourselves in Cyprus, where really, if you remember, Amelia and Desdemona shouldn't be there, should yeah. they? You know, Desdemona asks to go along. She's allowed to. Um, so she's not only they're not only in a masculine world, but they're really in a world that's full of soldiers. This is a place where yeah. people have gone to fight. And actually, the only other woman in play is Bianca, who is a prostitute, who would have been there anyway. Yeah. But these two women probably shouldn't be here. So that makes it even, you know, that makes them even more powerless and, and have less agency than they would elsewhere, um, I think. And as, you know, with many of these situations in the play, we see Desdemona and Amelia in this moment completely acting in, you know, kind way towards each other. But later on, this can be contrasted with the way that uh, Amelia in particular treats Bianca towards the end of the play, um, which is the wrong time to turn against another woman, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah. one of the things, um, uh, and you'll see because Mr. Forster and I are going to do a podcast on women in the play as a whole, and there's quite a lot of crossover. If you did do a whole text question on women in the play, obviously you can talk about quite a few of the things that we've talked about here, but it would have um, you know, a broader dimension as well. Mm. Um, so just to bring us on to the um, conclusion... Um, and I know people struggle slightly with conclusions, but I think, you know, if I w were you and I were planning, you know, annotating planning in my essay, I would worry about what I'm going to say in my thesis statement and what the key points I'm going to make are and what quotations yeah. I'm looking for. And the conclusion really is just a, a chance for you to tie up your ideas. If yeah, you run so out of time and you don't have time for a conclusion, that really is not the end of the world, actually. You know, Definitely. just a kind of concluding line so the examiner knows you've finished and isn't trying to turn over the page. But if you do have time for a conclusion, um, we have written a little snippet of a conclusion here. So I don't know if you'd like yep. to read that out. So, yeah, we have here, this scene is ultimately hugely moving, given its place so close to the end of the tragedy and the way in which Shakespeare foreshadows Desdemona's imminent murder through the use of the Willow Song and her musings on infidelity, which highlight her greater naivety and innocence. Emilia's impassioned speech towards the end of the extract forces the audience to consider women's plight in a patriarchal world more broadly, and we are left with the knowledge that both these characters lack any true agency in the world of the play. So that's where we are going to um, leave you. We hope you found that um, helpful. Um, in the downloadable sheet, um, we have glossed some of the vocabulary words, um, either ones that we think you might not know or ones that we actually think would be really useful. Some of you, I think, um, suffer from perhaps um, uh, your writing and your essays being a little bit too colloquial. Mm. And um, it's a really quick fix to just start using some slightly more sophisticated words. It's not It's not going to do all the hard work for you. The hard work is in the analysis. But, um, but there are times when one word will help you to take place of five yes, or six. Absolutely. Um, mm. uh, and there's also a little list of top tips um, at the bottom as well, just to um, remind you. Um, so thank you very much.